go ahead. Um, and I will draw anything that's crucial. And you guys are in trouble because I'm a terrible drawer. <laughs> uh, so, first of all, I just wanted to ask, is, is most of the material that's been gone over so far stuff that's old news to you? You've had it before. A little bit more detail, but the basics are all there. Um, okay. The second thing is there will be a paper discussed at the end of my next lecture. It's not, it won't be graded for discussion, but it's sort of a prelude to the paper that will be uh, the discussion paper that one of the discussion papers that I'm covering uh, talks about the mechanism of uh, MRE11 uh, cleavage during recombination, and um, and that is the one of the papers that will be discussed. So that that paper is that uh, Nature paper in 2011, and then in my discussion session there will be, which is on uh, February 6th, I have two papers that will be gone over. They're both short nature papers. The first one is a paper that uh, covers the topic of um, both in eukaryotes and prokaryotes, there's this concept of hot spots of recombination. So recombination occurs at a very high frequency at specific sites in the genome. And um, we're going to talk about in prokaryotes what specifies a hot spot of recombination. But until recently, in eukaryotes, we really didn't know. And one of the papers we're going to talk about is a protein that, at least in higher eukaryotes, mammals, mice, humans, uh, this protein PDRM9 is absolutely responsible for specifying hotspots of recombination in higher eukaryotes. Um, and then the second paper is another paper that will go over the, um, the enzymatic requirements for generating the intermediates that occur during recombination. Um, and again, it's a follow-up on this paper that will be discussed at the end of uh, the next lecture. One other thing, discussions tomorrow. So again, that's only graded on participation. Each discussion is worth 10 points. I, I'm going to break it so that rep represents 25% of your final grade. Usually professors just grade it 0, 5, 10, all right? And, Zero is you're asked a question and you're clueless. You know, five, you have a pretty good idea what's going on. Ten, you read the paper, you made a good effort. You know, that, at least that's the way I do it. Everybody has their own way of doing it. Okay, um, so I don't know why this isn't engaging. I apologize, I can't really do anything about it. Um, I hope all of you either had the printout or your computer. All right, so um, homologous recombination is a mechanism for exchanging genes between various organisms. It's also a mechanism of generating genetic diversity. Um, homologous recombination is the ability of cells to recombine uh, DNA that is homologous on any two chromosomes, and uh, they can recombine at multiple sites simultaneously, and the frequency with which recombination occurs between two sites is proportional to the distance between those sites. So that's, that's the genetics that was done around the turn of the century, around 1900, by the early geneticists. Um, what I am going to emphasize to you today is that homologous recombination, this mechanism of generating genetic diversity that is necessary for evolution of species, is really just a consequence of organisms taking advantage of the machinery that's developed to repair DNA double-strand breaks. 
So what you're going to see, or what we're going to go over, is the machinery for the repair of DNA double-strand breaks that occur at high frequency in our genomes every day is the same machinery that pretty much drives homologous recombination. So the homologous recombination machinery, this mechanism of developing genetic diversity, is just a consequence of cells having this um, genome monitoring activity that repairs double-strand breaks with high fidelity. Okay, so, uh, so you're all familiar with the concept of mitosis and meiosis. During mitosis, we have chromosomes are replicated during S phase, and then each chromosome has two sister chromatids following DNA replication. And then at mitosis, we have prophase chromosome condensation. Um, at prometaphase, we have nuclear envelope breakdown. And then each chromosome with its replicated sister chromatid moves to the metaphase plate, and the sister chromatids then segregate to the opposite pole during anaphase. So that's a typical mitotic division. How does meiotic division differ from that? Anybody? You get a haploid. Why do you get a haploid product? No, it's replicated. It's, you do two rounds of cell division. And what, what occurs during the first round of cell division during meiosis? That differs it from mitosis. You separate the maternal goes to one. Right. Cell and the Okay, two things both said are correct. So homologs pair at meiosis one, prophase one of meiosis, and those homologs then segregate. So now we have a reduction in the number of chromosomes per cell. In prophase two of meiosis, each replicated chromosome with its sister chromatid moves to the metaphase plate, and each of those sister chromatids segregates. So now we have four one-end gametes that resulted from meiotic division. What is absolutely critical for homologs to segregate during prophase one of meiosis, again, this is unique to meiosis, pairing of homologs, is they have to form a structure called the synaptonemal complex, and they have to undergo recombination. If they don't recombine or initiate recombination during prophase one of meiosis, segregation will arrest. You won't get chromosomal segregation at prophase one of meiosis. Okay, so this is the key thing. Recombination occurs during prophase one of meiosis. It's dependent upon a structure referred to as the synaptonemal complex. <laughs> I hope this guy comes around because I can't draw a synaptonemal complex. Um, okay, so let's just draw this out. So if we have two homologs and they are uh, two different alleles at these two sites, just given by heavy and dark. And these are, each one of these is a replicated chromosome. So that each one has undergone replication during S phase. So these homologs pair. And we can have recombination between these two strands of this sister chromatid and this sister chromatid on these replicated chromosomes during prophase one of meiosis. So following segregation, no, no, it's not working. No, you guys are lucky. <laughs> what, is, what did you hit? No, it was, it was on the wrong end. Somebody else before you came and they put it back on. All right. <laughs> if you guys knew, why don't you tell me? Okay, so here, much better. 
So So these have now undergone exchange during cophase one of meiosis. We've just generated this region it's referred to as heteroduplex DNA. The sequence on this strand differs from the sequence on this strand because these two regions are allelic. They're not the same allele. Okay, during meiosis two, now these sister chromatids will segregate. So now that we have four 1N spores, and this region right here in this 1N spore is still heteroduplex DNA for the sequence on this strand, which was derived from this chromosome, is paired with the sequence on this strand. And this is really sort of a, a schematic of what would happen. It would never be maintained in this state. Heteroduplex DNA is resolved at a much earlier stage. But this just depicts what would happen if these things weren't resolved and recombination had occurred. And so now we have four 1N spores because the sister chromatids segregated in meiosis 2. And then this is depicting what goes on in the fungi neurospora. They get eight ordered spores in an ascus. They undergo one additional round of mitosis. So each one of these um, 1N spores replicates its DNA and that this strand gives rise to this spore, this strand gives rise to this spore, and so on. And this strand gives rise to this spore right here that now has changed the order of the alleles in the ascus. So if no recombination occurred right here, we would have four red alleles and four blue alleles ordered in the ascus. So this is how they scored it genetically. But in this case, we've undergone this phenomenon referred to as postbiotic segregation where we have 3113. So the new recombination that occurred at this stage. And this is the sort of data that Robin Holiday, um, Dr. White referred to Holiday's model of recombination, used to develop his model for homologous recombination. And it almost all was from data, genetic data in neurospora, because they have these eight ordered spores that you can uh, easily monitor the end products of recombination. And his model was um, proposed to account for four basic observations of recombination. And some of them were very intuitive. So net conservation of genetic material, recombinant of chromosomes occur in reciprocal pairs. There is a heteroduplex region of DNA at the site of recombination. This, where the sequences of the two strands are not identical. And that genes flanking the heteroduplex region are found either in a recombinant linkage or with equal probability to retain their original linkage. And I'll go over what that means in a second. Okay, so as you think about recombination, um, you're, you're not going to remember the bulk of this in a year. But as you think about recombination, think about four basic steps. We have initiation, strand invasion, once the strand invades the intact duplex, it forms a crossover site. And this crossover site has the ability to branch migrate. And this amount of branch migration is variable. And then finally, we have these intertwined chromosomes that have initiated a strand invasion event. And they have to be disentangled. And that phenomenon is referred to as resolution. Okay, so we have enzymatic activities that drive all these processes. And here is the basic cartoon, the holiday model, in its simplest form. And most of it's correct, but um, the initiating step is wrong. So here we have two allelic chromosomes. 
are two chromosomes that have different alleles in this region. And in this picture, they're depicting that each of the chromosomes acquires a single strand today in one of the strands of the duplex. And that this strand comes up and is ligated here, and this strand goes down and is ligated there, such that we have a structure that has been now termed a holiday junction based on the holidays model. It's a site of crossover between two recombining chromosomes. And the feature of this site is that there's regions of single-stranded DNA at a holiday junction, okay? And they have this high structure that's present there. Okay, another feature of Holiday's model is the amount of heteroduplex DNA at the site of recombination can vary from recombination event to recombination event. And so all he depicted was that once we had this crossover form, that this branch had the ability to move variably, all right? And in order for this branch to move, what has to happen to these two duplexes? So if I've exchanged these strands and this branch is simply moving like that, what's occurring to these two duplexes in order for that to occur? What enzymatic activity is acting on them? Come on. Helicase, yes, okay. So we have to unwind these strands of the intact duplexes in order for the branch to continue to move and move this branch along. And then the amount of movement gives you this end product where you can have variable amounts of heteroduplex DNA at the site of the crossover. If you take this structure, pull it down, and flip it in the plane, you get this. Okay? All that is is taking the structure on the previous page, pulling the strands away, and rotating it. And so this is much easier for me to look at and think about the how uh, recombining chromosomes are resolved. And this is how Holiday came to his model for recombination results in end products that are either recombinant or non-recombinant for flanking markers. So here are the exchanging strands, here and here. Here are the non-exchanging strands of the duplex. If we cut this recombining chromosome pair in strands that are undergoing exchange, it goes in this direction. It generates products that have a region of heteroduplex DNA, but they're non-recombinant for flanking markers. They have blue on either side of the heteroduplex or red on either side of the heteroduplex. So you cut in the exchanging strand, you get heteroduplex non-recombinant for flanking markers. You cut in the non-exchanging strand, you get heteroduplex DNA, but you're recombinant for flanking markers. And Holiday predicted that that should occur at about 50%, well, it should occur with equal probability. So this should be 50% of the end products, that should be 50% of the end products. All right, so that was the genetics, that was the model. And now, for most of the rest of the talk, we're gonna talk about recombination of prokaryotes because it's pretty simple. There's so few gene <coughs> products involved. And for, after that, we'll talk about, in the next few lectures, recombination in eukaryotes, where there's a lot more gene products. But they do essentially the same things. Okay, so the first evidence that holiday junctions actually exist came from experiments that were um, carried out with plasma DNA. So I assume most of you, or many of you, have done plasma preps. Small circular pieces of DNA range in size from about 3 to 10 kilobases in size. You can purify them, 
But if you take those sorts of preparations and you put them on a DM grid, about 1% of the population of the DNA will look like this. So this could either be a consequence of homologous recombination between identical sequences on two plasmids, or just two plasmids sitting down next to each other fortuitously on the EM grid. And so the way they actually addressed that was they took and cut this DNA with the restriction endonuclease that cuts at a unique site in the plasmid. And so this showed that the site, the length, the contour length in the site is identical from the site of recombination. So where these sequences or these plasmids were joined was at identical sequences. And what is the other feature that Holiday's model predicted? Actually, you can see it best here. That at the site of crossover, there's a region of single-stranded DNA. Right? And they were able to visualize that because they plated, or they placed these uh, plasma preparations on the grids in the presence of denaturing reagents. So in low levels of formamid, they melted out the single-stranded regions of DNA, which you can see have a different diameter than this double-stranded DNA here. So the formamid isn't high enough to separate the strands of the intact duplex, but you can separate this region of single-strandedness that's occurring at the site of the holiday junction. So this was the first physical evidence that holiday junctions do indeed exist, and they account for recombination between homologous sequences on pieces of DNA. So what's the machinery that drives the process in prokaryotes? So we're going to talk about, you know, about five enzymatic activities, and, um, and they're all based on having been identified to be some deficiency in recombination proficiency. So the major player in the game is this protein RecA. RecA is an ATP binding protein. Mutants that are complete loss of function in RecA are 0.1% proficient in recombination. Okay, so they can still recombine, but at 0.1% of wild-type cells. So what does RecA do? RecA can bind both single-stranded DNA and double-stranded DNA. It binds single-stranded DNA with much higher affinity than it binds double-stranded DNA. And the other thing that RecA does is that as it binds to DNA, it changes the contour length. It changes the number of base pairs per turn of the helix. So 10 base pairs per turn of the helix for B-form DNA. RecA-bound DNA has about 15 base pairs per turn of the helix. And how can we visualize that? So here's a piece of plasmid DNA that's not RecA-bound. Here's the same RecA, same plasmid DNA that has been coated with RecA. And they just measure the contour length of this versus this, and they know it's about one and a half times the size. So you're getting a stretching of the DNA as a consequence of RecA-binding. So you don't have to worry about the stuff on the other side. Um, so how does RecA drive recombination? So again, RecA has the ability to bind both single-stranded and double-stranded DNA, but it binds single-stranded with much higher affinity. Its single-stranded DNA binding activity is ATP-dependent. So if there's a region of single-stranded DNA in the genome, RecA will code it, RecA ATP. And then this single-stranded region of DNA will convey the homologous duplex looking for homology. And so basically, as I think about it, is this piece of DNA bound to RecA is scanning this duplex looking for homologous sequences. And this just has a slight melting here as it's doing the scanning of that. When it encounters its homologous sequence, it undergoes, it, it drives ATP hydrolysis, 
and it displaces this strand from the intact duplex and pairs the invading strand with the other strand of the recipient duplex. And this intermediate is referred to as D-loop formation. Okay, so RecA by itself in vitro will drive this process. And you can see one of the end products here is two holiday junction crossovers as a consequence of this D-loop formation. So, um, again, we're going to talk a little bit about, so, so RecA is what drives strand invasion. How does RecA access the DNA? How do, how do we develop in some, some sort of regulated fashion regions of single-stranded DNA that can serve as RecA substrates to drive homologous recombination? And in prokaryotes, we simply don't know. And the problem is that prokaryotes have such a short life um, cell cycle, about 20 minutes if they're growing optimally in rich media, that you, get, you can't get intermediates of the process because there's so many cells that are all doing something different at the same time because their cell cycle is so short. And as you'll see at the end of the lecture, we can get intermediates in eukaryotes because their cell cycles are much longer. So we can identify an intermediate in the step. And this cartoon is actually based on data from eukaryotes, and we don't know what initiates recombination in prokaryotes. And remember the initial diagram had two intact duplexes, each of which acquired a single-stranded net. When we know in eukaryotes, that's not what occurs. In eukaryotes, we have one of the duplex acquires a transient double-strand break. And at the site of the DNA double-strand break, a five-prime five-prime to three-prime exonuclease chews back on one of the strands of the duplex, generating two three-prime overhangs. And this is the substrate for RecA binding. So RecA binds to this three-prime overhang, and then it mediates the strand invasion into this intact duplex, generating this D-loop uh, intermediate, where it's displaced the other strand from the intact duplex. In this picture, you see that we don't really have to have branch migration after that occurs, because once this strand invades this duplex and pairs with this duplex, this can now serve as a primer for DNA replication. So this strand can just be extended, and as it's being extended, it's displacing this strand, which eventually can come up and pair with this strand of this duplex. And what do we need for this to occur? The same things required for DNA replication. We have to be able to unwind this duplex as this strand is being extended in order for it to come up and pair with the other strand of the other duplex. So the feature that's critical to remember here, <coughs> transit double strand break, uh, five prime to three prime exo generates a three prime overhang. So it doesn't have the ability to move this branch at a very high rate. And we knew it couldn't account for the rates of recombination that occur in prokaryotic cells in vivo. And so they identified other branch migration activities, in other words, helicases, that can drive this branch at a site of recombination. 
And the first proteins that were identified that are in this pathway referred to as RUV A and RUV B. The RUV nomenclature is repair of UV. There were genes that were defective in the repair of UV damaged DNA. And uh, RUV AB forms a heterodimer. It's an ATP dependent helicase, and it has the ability to move this branch at a much greater rate than REC A does. The other feature of RUV AB that's unique compared to <coughs> REC A's branch migration activity is REC A can only drive the branch in one direction. So this strand comes down from a strand invasion event. REC A will drive the branch this direction. RUV AB is a bi directional motor. It can drive the branch this way or this way. All right? So why is that? Uh, they now have crystal structure of RUV AB uh, in complex with a holiday junction. So RUV A is a tetramer. It binds with high affinity. It's the only known protein that binds with high affinity to a holiday junction site, the site of crossover between two recombining chromosomes. And then the RUV A tetramer recruits a RUV B hexamer. And the hexamer of RUV B is the motor activity. This is the helicase. They can unwind this strand and drive branch migration in this direction. But the RUV B hexamer can bind on either side of the RUV A tetramer. So if it binds on this side, branch migration moves this way. If it binds on this side, branch migration moves this that way. So that's the basis for the bidirectional activity of the uh, RUV A B helicase. REC G is another helicase that um, it can only move in a single direction, but if this is the direction that the REC A branch migration activity is going in, REC G moves in the opposite direction of REC A. And so what is critical for is in, it's involved in the repair of stalled replication forks. Recombination occurs to repair stalled replication forks, and once you initiate that recombination, you want to disengage it so you can continue replicating once you've repaired the region, and REC-G does that. So you get a strand invasion event to repair DNA installed replication forks, and then you disengage that with an activity like REC-G that pulls the recombination event apart. So here's a picture where we have duplex DNA. Here's a simpler picture. Exchanging strands, non-exchanging strands, rub-base, sitting on the site of holiday of crossover, it's called the Kai site, and uh, the rub B motor sitting on either side so it can move bidirectionally. How do we resolve this structure? We resolve it with the activity of a, a dimer that's referred to as rub C. Again, it's one of the proteins that was pulled out in a screen that was defective in the repair of UV damaged DNA, and um, rub C mutants, and this to my knowledge, this is the only, this activity is referred to as a resolvase. It cuts the DNA that it's exchanging at the sites of holiday junction crossovers. And it's the only resolvase that's been identified in prokaryotes. But remember, if you're REC A deficient, you're 0.1% recombination proficient. If you're rel C deficient, you're only down to 1%. So there's some other resolvase activity that can disengage these recombining chromosomes to uh, separate them following a recombination event. So again, rub C can sit down this way and cleave the strands this way. This would be cleaving the non-exchanging strands. Or it can sit down this way and cleave uh, 
this fan, which are the exchanging strands. So depending on which way this sits down on this substrate, it directs cleavage either in the exchanging or non-exchanging strands, which makes it either recombinant or non-recombinant for flanking markers. How did this one sit down? How did it sit down? What strands did it cleave to get this end product of recombination? It's, no, it's the non-exchanging strands. So when it's recombinant for flanking markers, it's the non-exchanging strands. All right, so I want to briefly go over um, how all these activities were defined in vitro. And, um, and I want you to comment on what this gel on the next figure, is it consistent with Holiday's prediction? Okay, so it turns out that you need a piece of gapped DNA. If you have a single-stranded nick in this circular piece of DNA, it won't serve as a substrate for recta-dependent recombination. But this piece of gap DNA is homologous to this linear duplex. And there's a P32 label on this end of this duplex strand. So we can track these, how this DNA, uh, the radioactivity moves as a consequence of strand invasion and recombination. So if this region here was decorated with BRCA and it attacked this duplex, you'd get this intermediate. And I don't care that you remember at all what these things look like. It's just that they're topologically different and they can be resolved on an agarose gel. So this is the initial strand invasion intermediate. Here's the P32 label that's present in this intermediate here. If this continued on via the activity of RECA, complete branch migration, you get a structure that can be resolved on a gel compared to this. It's called the sigma structure. Here's the alpha structure. And RUB-AB can make this go faster than RECA alone because it's, a, it's helicase activity will drive it faster. The other consequence of adding rub AB to this, it's bidirectional. So it can push it back to our starting substrates as well. So whatever REC A started, rub AB will drive back the other direction, or it will drive to completion in the same direction as REC A. So it's a bidirectional move. And then if we add rub C to this, all I want you to do is look at where the label is in a piece of heteroduplex DNA and what's flanking it. This one's recombinant for flanking markers. So this one was generated by cleavage in the non-exchanging strands. This one has a piece of heteroduplex DNA that's non-recombinant for flanking markers. And so this one is, was cleaved in the strands undergoing exchange. So if we can follow these products on an agarose gel and ask, do these activities recapitulate all of Holiday's predictions? we just put them in a test tube with these artificial substrates, does recombination occur as predicted? So here is, again, our starting intermediates. They're following this label. And initially, it migrates as this, linear duplex DNA. If we add nothing to the tube, uh, oh, excuse me, rec A to the tube by itself, you'll get this initial intermediate, this alpha structure. And if you incubate for a longer time in rec A alone, this will go to there, to this structure. And if you add rub AB to the mix, which is here, it just goes to this structure faster, so you get there. But it also goes back to the linear duplex. 
So Rec A alone, you don't see the linear duplex forming because Rec A is unidirectional. Rub AB, you get the linear duplex in this structure faster. So everything's so far is good. All right, what is not consistent with this plane with Holiday's model? So here are the two products that result from resolution, the addition of rub C to the test tube. What's not consistent with Holiday's model there? What does Holiday's model say? Equal probability, recombinant or non-recombinant for flanking markers. All these products are, are end products that are either recombinant or non-recombinant for flanking markers. So in the test tube, with all these proteins present, you can't recapitulate what Holiday predicted. All right? You get, it favors recombination with cleavage in the non-exchanging strands, recombinant for flanking markers. It turns out that these same investigators showed that if you initiate recombination with Rec A and then deprotonate that substrate, so now we have exchanging strands that have no longer have um, Rec A on them, and then add Rub C, then these products come out with equal probability. All right. So the ability of Rub C, the resolvase, to uh, access the DNA and cleave it and re-ligate it is really dependent upon whether Rec A is there or Rec A is not there. Is that clear? All right, so the only other activity in uh, prokaryotes we're going to talk about is the Rec B C D enzyme. Mutation, this is a multi-protein complex. It has endonuclease, 5 prime to 3 prime exo, 3' prime, 5' prime exo and helicase activities associated with it. It was known that mutations in any one of these subunits, loss of function mutations, result in cells that are about 1% recombination proficient. So remember, Rec A is 0.1%. These are 1% recombination proficient. Um, it was long thought gen from genetic studies that it was perhaps the endonuclease activity of um, Rec DCD that was necessary to introduce NICs into the donor duplex in order for it to undergo exchange with the recipient duplex. Um, that may or may not be true. We still don't know that for, for a fact. And all this is a picture of a duplex DNA that has these rabbit ear structures that are being unwound via the action of the helicase activity. And to be honest with you, I don't know how they control it such that they only get the helicase activity with local unwinding. But this is because of the helicase activity of Rec BCD. Um, so this is what Rec BC does, BCD does, and the only part of the picture we don't know is how does this complex access the duplex? How does it get on the duplex? And most of this is from in vitro reconstitution experiments. They know that if you add Rec BCD to an intact duplex, it will bind to the duplex. And it has a 5 prime to 3 prime exo and a 3 prime to 5 prime exo. And it has a helicase. So the helicase unwinds the duplex, and the two different exonuclease activities degrade both strands. So it's scanning along the DNA, and what it's doing is it's looking for this sequence in prokaryotes called a chi site. 
It's an eight nucleotide sequence. And when the REC BCD enzyme encounters a chi site, it's three prime to five prime exonuclease activity, which was active prior to engaging the chi site, is attenuated. It's turned off. So once this encounters the chi site, this strand is no longer degraded. This strand continues to be degraded. And the consequence of that is we generate a three prime overhang, which is a substrate for REC A binding. And then REC A can make a strand invasion on the intact duplex. So the function of REC BCD is that it's sort of a, um, a genome surveyor. And it moves along the DNA, degrading both strands of the intact duplex until it encounters the chi site. When it encounters the chi site, the exonuclease activity that's degrading this strand turns off. This one continues. So now we generate this region of three prime overhang that can serve as a substrate for RECA binding. This is RECA ATP. Um, so this is the hotspot recombination in prokaryotes, high sites, eight nucleotide sequence. And it's being read by the RECA BCD enzyme. So sites of recombination are um, homologous recombination are dependent upon REC A loading at chi sites in E. coli, for instance. So they now have crystal structure. They have single molecule tracking on REC BCD moving along duplex DNA, degrading it. And this has led to a model for how REC BCD functions. So there's helicase activity in the D and the B subunit. The nuclease activities are in the B subunit. And the DNA scanning activities are in the C subunit. And this is the strand here that has the chi site on it. And here's this chi site scanning tunnel. And so as the DNA is initially moving through, it hasn't encountered a chi site. As it pops out of these two scanning tunnels, the nuclease activity degrades both strands. One's a 5' prime to 3' prime XL, the other one's 3' prime to 5'. Prime. <coughs> in this picture, and I don't know how good the data is to support this. This is how this region is protected from um, further degradation. They pictured it such that when the chi site moves through this tunnel, it arrests in the chi scanning site. And now you've got the helicase still unwinding the duplex. So it's spooling out here, making this single-stranded DNA. But the end isn't available for the exo. And so now this region gets decorated with REC-A. And then that's how you get loading on that site. I don't know how good the evidence is for this intermediate though, versus it being a model. So one point that I want to uh, make is that there's two machineries for this REC-A loading. Um, the predominant one is REC-BCD, but there's an alternative one. And it's a machinery that uses the multi-subunit complex REC-FOR, and this is a REC-A loading machinery. But this REC-FOR has no nuclease or helicase activity associated with it. So FOR requires a REC-J nuclease. And really what I want you to remember is a REC-Q helicase. And REC-Q helicases are homologous in prokaryotes to a family of helicases that are critical for recombination and repair of damaged DNA. So it's a family of helicases that we'll talk about uh, more in the next lecture. So the big thing is, if I asked, is there an alternative machinery for loading? 
Yes. It relies on this protein for allowing loading on a BRCA, and it relies on this helicase and this nuclease acting in conjunction with this loading machine. So uh, Dr. Partridge talked about transposases. Um, what does a transposase need to move in the genome? The DNA transposases that are present at very high copy number in the, in the human genome. What does it rely on for movement? What does it encode? What does every transposase encode, or most transposases? It encodes a transposase. It encodes the enzymatic activity that allows it to jump from site to site in the genome. And how does it move? I mean, she talked about it briefly. The transposase recognizes flanking sequences in the transposon, and it cleaves. These are inverted repeats, direct inverted repeats. So the transposase sees that sequence at the ends of the transposon, and it also sees a unique sequence at the site that it's going to jump to. So it sees a cognate-specific sequence, and it will only cleave there and direct the transposon into that site. So these are called site-specific recombination events. So homologous recombination is the ability of cells to recombine any two homologous sequences, RECA-dependent and prokaryotes. Site-specific recombination is the ability of a specific recombinase to direct recombination between specific sites in the genome. And I'm going to give you an example of recombination in lambda bacteriophage. Uh, and it's it's mechanistically very similar to transposition that occurs in um, mammalian cells. So you get cleavage at a specific site, and then cleavage at a target site, and then insertion of the DNA into the target site. And that's how recombination of bacteriophage lambda chromosome occurs into the bacterial chromosome. So when lambda infects a bacterial cell, and introduces its DNA from its capsid into the cytoplasm of the cell. Once that, and once that phage DNA is introduced into the cytoplasm, it circularizes. And it has two choices at that point. And it really depends on the, uh, the environment. It, does, does the phage um, sense stress in the prokaryotic cell? If it senses stress in the prokaryotic cell, it's going to undergo a lytic cycle of infection. So it undergoes rolling circle replication to make more phage genomes. It makes phage proteins, which make the capsid head. The capsid encapsidates the phage head, and these phage then eventually lice the infected cell, releasing progeny phage. So that's one option. The other option, if that enters the bacterial cell and uh, it senses that life is good, and I can't really tell you what sensing life is good is, but there's a general feeling that life is good versus life is bad, is if there's high levels of single-stranded DNA present in the infected cell, it'll go this pathway. You'll see the cell is being damaged and being in a state of disrepair. If there's not much single-stranded DNA in the cell, it goes this way. It undergoes a phenomenon referred to as lysogeny where the bacterial or the phage chromosome recombines with a specific site on the bacterial chromosome, entering what's referred to as a lysogenic state. And then the phage chromosome just simply replicates with the bacterial chromosome in this state referred to as lysogeny. And then um, it has the ability to excise 
And so this can continue for generations. But again, if the cell senses stress, or there's some sense of stress, high levels of single-stranded DNA, the phage chromosome excises back out and then undergoes this lytic pathway. So it has the ability to excise back out of the bacterial chromosome. So how does that occur? So here's the phage chromosome. It's about 37 kilobases of DNA. And on the phage chromosome, it's referred to as an AT-T site, attachment phage, AT-T. And the AT-T has a core sequence that's identical to a sequence present on the bacterial chromosome called AT-B. And how recombination occurs is there are staggered cuts put here and here, first at the AT-T site, and then they put the same staggered cuts into the AT-B site, and essentially just do strand exchange and ligation. And this strand exchange and ligation from this introduction of staggered cuts and strand exchange goes to a holiday junction intermediate. So they can see this holiday junction intermediate during this process. This integration process requires a protein that's coded by lambda. It's called integrase. It's mechanistically similar to transposases. All right, it also requ requires uh, a host factor, integration host factor. It's just a heterodimer of HIM-A and HIM-B. And it's stimulated by a protein called this that's phage encoded. And it's inhibited by a protein called cis, which is also phage encoded. This protein is required for the excision pathway, cis. So the only thing that's required for this recombination event to occur um, the bacterial chromosome is this, the core sequence. It's about 40 base pairs. I'm not sure the exact length. But what's required on the phage chromosome is the core sequence plus these blanking sites. And the reason for that is as follows. So here, they've been able to um, replicate this process, putting these sites onto plasmid DNA and then doing the recombination in a test tube. And what you need for recombination to occur is you need the whole AT-P site, which is the core plus these flanking sequences on one plasmid. And then you only need the AT-B site, this core, on the other plasmid. And so why do you need all this flanking sequence in the AT-P site? The reason you need it is that integrase with IHF attacks the FP site, and it puts a staggered cut into this sequence in the core. But in order for it to put that cut into the core, it forms a structure. Um, so the nucleosome is about a 10 nanometer structure, right? A little 10 nanometer structure. This process of int and IHF binding to the FP site forms what's called an intosome, and it's about 10 nanometers in size. So the ability of integrase to bind at the core and in these flanking sequences, as well as IHF to bind in the flanking sequences, forms this 10 nanometer structure. And the 10 nanometer structure forms prior to cleavage. And then once cleavage occurs, this whole structure, this 10 nanometer structure, attacks the AT-B site and puts the same staggered cuts into the AT-B site. So there's a sequence of events. And it requires the topology of the binding of int integrase to these flanking sequences and IHF to these flanking sequences. Um, and one thing 
Dr. White's talked about footprinting. You, you all understand the concept of footprinting, right? This is how these sequences, binding sites, were mapped. Where if I put a P32 label on this end of this piece of DNA, and I incubate this piece of DNA, the P32 label, with something like DNase 1, a nonspecific nuclease that cuts about every 10 base pairs, I'll get a ladder of bands on a sequencing gel that has about a break every 10 base pairs. If I incubate this piece of DNA with integrase, and I do then the same DNase 1 digestion, some of those 10 nucleotide cut sites will disappear because they're going to be protected by integrase binding. So that's the concept of footprinting, where you get protection of a bound protein to specific sequences on a DNA template, and they prevent the uh, accessibility of nucleases or chemical uh, cleavage reagents to this thing. So this is how they footprinted the sites where integrase binds. There's protection here, 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 and here. IHF protects here, here, and here. Is that clear? All right. So I'm going to briefly <coughs> talk, touch on the initiating events of recombination in um, eukaryotes. So um, there, there, there are no morphologically distinct events that occur during mitosis. Um, in terms of chromosomal condensation. Um, chromosomes condense, nuclear envelopes break down, chromosomes move to the metaphase plate, and they segregate. But that's not true during prophase one of meiosis. During prophase one of meiosis, which is the time of chromosomal condensation prior to nuclear envelope breakdown, we have five distinct events that occur before nuclear envelope breakdown occurs. And these are morphologically distinct events that can be scored at the electron microscope level. The first one is referred to as leptotene. This is just condensation of chromosomes. It would be similar to the same condensation you'd see prophase of my mitosis. The second one is zygotene. And this is the initiation of the formation of a structure that's referred to as the synaptonemal complex. So this is when two homologs come together and they pair along their entire length. And they form a structure between them referred to as the synaptonemal complex, and I'll show you what it looks like in a second. At pacotene, they've completely zippered together, all right? The two homologous chromosomes have completely formed an intact synaptonemal complex. And for 100 years, geneticists felt, because you could actually view these cytologically even before EM, geneticists felt that it was the formation of an intact synaptonemal complex that was required for recombination. The idea was they had to pull chromosomes into register in order for recombination to occur between these homologs. And they knew, and now we know, that recombination has to occur for the chromosomes to eventually segregate from each other. Uh, at diplutine, the synaptonemal complex starts to break down, and you have chiasma, crossover sites that were thought to be relics of the recombination event between these two exchanging chromosomes. And then at diakinesis, the chiasma had the ability to branch migrate, the same sort of phenomena of branch migration that we talked about before. So we have first condensation, then pairing, complete pairing, recombination, and then we can score the end products of recombination. And at this stage, you can see these structures that are referred to as nodes of recombination at the EM level. And that's what's shown in this slide. 
So <clears throat> this is the DNA from one homologue at the EM level. This is the DNA from the other homologue at the EM level. Here is the intact synaptonemal complex. This would be at the packetine stage, where these two homologues are completely zippered to each other. <clears throat> and you have an electron dense, I mean electron dense, flanked by two electron lucent regions in the synaptonemal complex. And then we have these structures, they call them recombination nodes, that, thought, that were thought to be defining sites of recombination. And then the number of nodes that you had during recombination occurred to the number of chiasmas. So as, these, as this synaptonemal complex breaks apart and these chromosomes repel, they would be joined at a chiasma that corresponded in number to the number of nodes that were present. Okay, so what I'm going to tell you is that whole idea is wrong. Um, it doesn't work that way. So again, the idea of recombination being directed by transient double-strand breaks came from studies in eukaryotes, and we'll go over it again. But you get a double-strand break, get you back with a 5'-3'-exo uh, on one of the strands, generating a 3' overhang. This can serve as a substrate for strand invasion because this gets decorated in the case of prokaryotes by Rec A, and it attacks, attacks the intact reflux. So it goes like this. So how can we ask, does this intermediate arise in, in any organism? Can we monitor the appearance of transient double-strand breaks during homologous recombination? And the cell cycle, again, in E. coli, is 20 minutes. Every intermediate's going to exist in a population of DNA. You can't see a specific intermediate because the cell cycle is so short. But in yeast, recombination occurs during sporulation. And you can trigger yeast cells that are growing normally vegetatively in a 2N state to undergo sporulation by starving them for an essential nutrient. So if you remove carbon or a nitrogen source from the media that yeast are growing in, those cells will initially, I'm, I'm talking about Saccharomyces cerevisiae now, those cells will undergo sporulation and generate 1N spores. And the question is, what's happening to the DNA? I mean, we knew that during meiosis, sporulation is meiosis, that these events were occurring. The question is, what's happening to the DNA as these events are occurring? <clears throat> and so this experiment was super simple. You're growing cells vegetatively, and they're in a rich medium. And then I remove a carbon source, and I trigger all the cells in the cell culture to undergo sporulation. The sporulation process is uh, it's fairly synchronous. It takes about uh, somewhere between four and eight hours to complete. And so all they did was a southern blotting analysis. And again, they knew there were certain hot spots of recombination that occur in yeast. So they did a southern blotting analysis at, in a region where they knew a hot spot occurred. So this would be the hot spot. They knew recombination occurred at a high frequency from genetics. And they had a P32 labeled probe that just spanned this putative hot spot. And what they found was that when you triggered these cells to sporulate in the southern blotting analysis, this 4.5 or 4.6 kb PSD fragment was cleaved in half. And you generated a 2.5 and a 2.1. And still you had some of the population that had this larger fragment. 
And this was indicative of the fact that when the cells were triggered to undergo sporulation, you got the introduction of a transient double-strand break. Okay? All right, so real simple experiment. And then, as time passes, the double-strand break's cured. All right, and when combination is complete, it's gone. So <clears throat> what I'll tell you, I don't think I really talk about it anymore, is that this event, <clears throat> the appearance of the transient double-strand break, occurs prior to the formation of an intact synaptonemal complex. So this appears and disappears before the appearance of an intact synaptonemal complex. So the synaptonemal complex isn't necessary to bring chromosomes into register and allow for the recombination. Its recombination is necessary for synaptonemal complex to form and allow chromosomes to align at the metaphase plate normally and then segregate during uh, anaphase. All right? So it's the flip of what the original hypothesis was. And then this asks the second question of uh, what is the nature of the DNA at the site of the transient double-strand break? So the experiment's essentially identical, but instead of using a P32-labeled DNA double-strand probe, they use asymmetric RNA probes. So it's the same region. We have a hot spot recombination. We have these flanking PST sites. Actually, it's a different region, I guess. But this probe will only hybridize one of the strands of the duplex. It's an asymmetric RNA probe. This probe, which is complementary to that probe, will hybridize to the other strand of the duplex. So they ask, okay, if we use these asymmetric RNA probes and probe the cells that have been stimulated to undergo sporulation, what will they hybridize to? Well, it turned out that this probe would only hybridize to this side of the break. And this probe would only hybridize to this side of the break. Because the sequence that this probe recognizes, even though it flanks the double-strand break, the sequence that it hybridizes to on the other side of the break has been digested with an exonuclease. It's no longer there. And the same holds true. This probe sequence on this side of the break is no longer there because it's been degraded with an exonuclease. So rather than seeing both strands, or both of these products, following hybridization, they only see a single product. So the key, this was a pretty clever experiment. Now about almost 20 years ago they did it. But the key to doing it was, what do you do when you do a southern blot? What do you do to the DNA before you transfer it to a filter in order to probe it with any probe? You run out of gel. But what do you do before you transfer the DNA to a gel? Yes. Well, you have to strand separate it, or else the strands aren't available to hybridize to your incoming probe. In this case, they didn't do strand separation before. That was the clever part of this experiment. They didn't do strand separation. So the only regions that were going to be available to bind were going to be naturally single-stranded regions at the site of the single-strand break. So th that was a really clever part of this experiment that allowed them to demonstrate that at the site of the break, this predicted 5' prime to 3' prime exonuclease activity was chewing back, generating a 3' prime overhang. And again, this is the intermediate. We're going to talk about this intermediate and how it's processed in the next lecture. And if you don't have questions, I am done. And the one thing I apologize for, there is nothing on this material in any text. All right? This is just lifted out of a whole variety of uh, reviews and 
papers. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions that any of you have about it if it's unclear. Um, what I want you to know is what's in the PowerPoint and what I've talked about. Um, and again, bring questions if you have questions next time. All right, thanks.